uh, Patricia, who just volunteered. Yay, Patricia, thank you. She ran into our um, Sangha member, Richard Kamler, who you may not remember, he's the person that announced the on the night that we sat outside, he announced the uh, vigil for the person that was on death row. And, uh, and after that, he was in a car accident and broke his sternum, uh, got his chest um, smashed. And uh, Patricia ran into him at Tennessee Valley Road in Marin County and uh, he was sitting on a bench and was uh, lamenting not being able to to move or uh, really do anything. Every little movement is painful and really struggling and Patricia reminded him that he could meditate. So, <laughs> how'd I do, Patricia? Okay. Anyway, if all else fails, meditate. <laughs> Anyway, what's that? Oh, Kumasi, also, who just moved to Ohio. Uh, She spoke to him today and he said hello to everyone. Anyway, I'm just reminded how how each of us, each person, uh, affects everyone. How we all affect each other and how, yeah, I would not be the same. I would not be the way I am right now if it had not been for you or whoever. Every, every, we're all impacting each other, and it's, a, it's kind of a magical um, sense that I have of partly of being out of control, <laughs> being moved by life. But, I, but somehow the, the sense of when I really connect with that feeling of being moved, I actually feel more trust. I feel more a sense that, that uh, it's okay. For about 10 days, I didn't use my voice. So in the last few days, I've been meeting with people from morning till night, and now I've become losing my voice. <laughs> it's really funny. So I feel a little bit... Um, Odd this evening, taking, coming back into this seat, into this identity. Really, it's kind of like an identity. Being, a, I've been nobody for the last, not even subject to any other than f- husband and father. I've been uh, just without identity, and it's been really wonderful. It's okay if you let go of your identity. I promise you, <laughs> it really is. It is okay. In fact, try it as many times a day as you can. Uh, it's a good thing. You know, I, at the same time, I understand when you're in a social setting and often the first question that comes up is, uh, what do you do? And I know ha- not having, if you don't have work or you don't have an identity, a work identity or a uh, something like that, that can be a, a challenging, um, it can be challenging in that context to be free of identity. But for the most part, we really don't need to be um, building any kind of monuments to what we do. In fact, I, I had no idea I was going to talk about this, but I did 
this is actually, I was going to talk about this in a different context, but this is from Bo Lozoff, where he says, it's only very recently that people began associating their self-worth, self-esteem, status in the community, their very identity with their career. It's just a passing fad in human history. Don't get caught up in it. Men like my grandfather may have been considered the pillar of their church or community, and what he did for a living was paint houses. My granduncle collected rags, both honorable, esteemed men. To them, what they did for money was the pettiest thing, part of life. No blue-collar, white-collar nonsense. So long as it was honest, who cared? And further, they worked as little as possible, not as much. They fed their families, paid their rent. They weren't trying to get ahead. Another interesting expression. Get ahead of what? The context I actually wanted to use that quote in was the um, was the context of kindness, of goodness, of getting our getting our values straight about what we um, what we really value. Someone gave me a, a bit of research find some research findings about what it is we value. And you can check this out in your own mind. I said, what we value in others is warmth. What we value in ourselves is competence. And this, is, this lays the problem. This, lie, this, this is where the problem is. that because we value competence in ourselves, there is a continual, um, I don't even have to say much more, there's a continual measuring. There's a continual keeping score. There is that, that um, feeling of keeping up with the, the same passage from Bo Lozoff. He says, people are busy keeping up with the Joneses. But he goes on to say that it's time that we understand that the Joneses are not happy. Anyway. This measuring ourselves by, by competence misses our, our deepest and most beautiful qualities, which is our, our warmth. Yet we can see it so clearly in others. We mostly don't really care what somebody does. But we do care whether they're a nice person. And most people don't care about us. What we, yeah, I think I just said the same thing. You can see I'm a little spaced out tonight. Meanwhile, while we're seeing the beauty in others as they express their warmth, judging ourselves by our competence, we're um, setting ourselves up to make a case, uh, a continual case for the prosecution prosecution, uh, uh, that internal narrative that's, um, that's basically building a case that there is something wrong with us. Uh, and of course, if we, are, if we have some great achievement and success, great, we get to feel good. 
And, but it's very short-lived, and it, it, there's a kind of anxiety in it. There's a kind of tension in it. There's a kind of... Um, it's not... It's, not um, it's based on conditions. It's conditional well-being, conditional happiness. It's not unconditional, which is really what, our, what we need more of, is to recognize that in us which is just unconditional, our basic goodness, our okayness. This productivity model that we tend to hold ourselves under, it's so interesting how we don't hold other people to that same standard. But that productivity model is, um, is the cause of a lot of exhaustion, weariness, um, uh, that sense of holding ourselves hostage. And yet, at the, in the midst of it, by recognizing, by noticing that process of holding ourselves hostage, by noticing the way that we talk to ourselves, noticing the, the way that uh, whatever our criteria is or the way that we measure our sense of worth is the beginning uh, we have within us this capacity to step out of, to become liberated from this, what I consider a kind of tyranny. A kind of tyranny. This is something I often read at the beginning of retreats, and I've probably read it many times here, but I don't know if you've heard it before. But this is the, the way that this... Um, Please remind me, have I read Amy Krauss Rosenthal lately? Sweet Nothing, any of you remember? How have you been? Busy. How's work? Busy. How was your week? Good, busy. You name the question, busy's the answer. Yes, yes, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly there are more interesting, more original, more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my house. I'm itchy. I'm cramping. <laughs> my, my foot keeps cramping up. Yet busy stands alone as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I'm busy is the short way of saying, implying, my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you, therefore, should think well of me. Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? This week is crazy. I've got about ten caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? I have a hunch that there is a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase of busyness. Look at us. We're all pros now at hailing cabs, making Xeroxes, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go cup in hand. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, high not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. 
As kids, our stock answer to most every question, what did you do at school today? What's new? Was nothing. In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. <laughs> then, somewhere on the way to adulthood, we cashed we took, each took a 180-degree turn. We cashed in our nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try reintroducing it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing. I say it a few times. I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, zenish. Nothing. Now I'm picturing emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing, nothing, nothing. How did I get so far away from it? So in the nothing, when we're just, I, I think consider nothing is when we're just here being ourselves, but not being anybody in particular, if you know what I mean. Not separating ourselves out and measuring ourselves by our competence or by our accomplishments or productivity. We, when we touch this simplicity, this quiet, this, we, we find our, our tender hearts. And more often than not, especially if we've been wound up, it may take a little while, but often there will be this, this feeling of, um, of sadness. I don't, know, I don't know exactly how to interpret the sadness other than it feels as though it's the opening of the heart, but often there's a sadness of having missed ourselves, having uh, missed what is nearer than our breath, which is this, this simple warmth that we are, this, this tenderness, this being. Other people can sense it in us, but somehow we stop valuing it because we're so busy trying to get somewhere else. This is why it's so much emphasis on settling back into the moment, reclaiming our heritage, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it. In his, that one passage where he, in one of his poems where he says, you who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. What do we discover? Those riches are not are some kind of uh, exotic exotic um, accomplishment. They're just the beauty of our, our tender hearts, that warmth. So, of course, we have the very chronic habit of ignoring this in ourselves, seeing it in others, measuring ourselves by an impossible standard of perfection and an impossible kind of idealism. But the good news is, not only can we begin to get some space and become more free of this internal tyrant called uh, competence and productivity, we can let this, the feeling of tension, let it all be the reminder, the call to uh, remember our basic goodness. Let it be the reminder of our love of um, of goodness, of kindness, of warmth, and to be reminded, as I'm often reminded, is that this quality of of inner tyranny or inner inner tension and 
um, judgment, it's not there by accident. It's there because this is what we have practiced. Innocently, but we practice this. And it reminds me that it really is what it what you frequently, these are the words of the Buddha, whatever you frequently uh, dwell upon becomes the inclination of your heart-mind. So if you frequently dwell upon how you're doing, how you're doing, and when I say how you're doing, how am I measuring up? If you frequently dwell upon that, you're continually dwelling upon a kind of mind-made measuring apparatus that um, that measuring that has nothing to do with uh, with your intrinsic goodness. If you, on the other hand, frequently dwell upon your own wholesome qualities, you when you dwell upon others, you dwell upon their wholesome qualities, see more often what's uh, the goodness in others rather than what's wrong with them. Now this is easy to talk about. It's another thing to actually practice it. Our, fe- our body of fear, I say this all with the background of death and dying. This may sound a little strange. My father-in-law, by the way, I don't want to be glib about this, but my father-in-law died in the last week. I mentioned him a few weeks ago. He was ready to go, and he died very peacefully and gracefully. And um, he is just one of just a continual retinue of people who I've been having contact with who have death and dying so close at hand. And I think all of us have death and dying close at hand. I probably, if I did a little query of this room, I bet at least half the room has been touched in the very short recent past with, with death and dying, sickness, old age, death. We're all touched by this. We're all touched by the reality of this uh, for anyone who is born and the uncertainty, complete uncertainty of the time that will come. That that sense, that quality, or that reality of being out of control to that extent makes us crazy. It activates to such an extent our body of fear that we try to defend and protect every way we can, organize our lives to not, um, not hurt, not get hurt. And what that tends to do is it tends to reinforce a feeling of separateness. It ends, to, it ends up re- intensifying our feeling of, of isolation. And when we're tense, we get really, when we're tense, innocently, but chronically, when we are tense, we, get, we complain. We get very critical. We start demanding ourselves to be different and the beings and the people around us to be different. Everything has to make be the cause of our safety. So through the lens, I call it through the lens of the, of the fear body, we tend to, um, I, I'll speak for myself, I tend to, I get, tend to get mad at everything. I 
tend to be frustrated by everything. I tend to be suspicious, be more paranoid, be more, be more, um, just less charitable. That's when I'm, when I don't notice. Any of you relate to this at all? On the other hand, when I remember and I intentionally, sometimes I have to, because I can get, uh, I try to see the good in people, try to remember the good in myself. There's a, there's a, um, a kind of quivering that happens, a, a, a shift. But I have to remember, and I have to frequently, again, that passage, whatever one frequently dwells upon becomes the inclination of the mind. I have to regularly remember to uh, see the good in others. And I have to remember to see the good in myself. This tends to be one of the antidotes, one of the salves for our body of fear, for um, our um, that feeling of lack of safety, lack of trust. This is from the Buddha. Maybe the second most famous sutta called the Metta Sutta. This is, is, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness. I consider all of you skilled in goodness or developing the skill of goodness. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. That's a good one right there. Humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. I don't know why every time I read this, it feels like a revelation. Because it is so the antithesis of the, the cultural paradigm, the message that, uh, that is offered up every day in the uh, advertising world. This is, I don't mean particular advertising companies. I see it as a cultural thing, so no offense to people who are in advertising. There are many adver- people in advertising who are Dharma students. Contented and easily satisfied, humble and not conceited, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. Each one of these, peaceful. How much do we consciously incline toward peacefulness? How much do we consciously incline toward calmness or being easily satisfied or frugal in our ways, skillful in our actions. I think many Dharma students do. That's a really important element. Not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, 
This is part of the inclination of the mind. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Filling our mind with the wish that the person who we have just been railing at for being different than the way we want them to be, wishing them well. Letting that, letting our crazy irritation, anger, be the reminder to then wish them well. Think it's possible? This is what I like to do anyway, when I can remember. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born or to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. There was a recent television interview that tested this for me. Maybe some of you noticed it. So with a politician. And again, it was that test. I wanted uh, my natural inclination or my conditioned inclination is to feel ill will toward this particular politician. And I actually tried to put him in my heart. I won't name any names. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects her lo- with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies, downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, sitting or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, big one, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from sense desires, is not born again into this world. This may be little challenging to understand this not being born into the world it's really not being born into uh, the state of dukkha not being born into the state of of that continual torment of the mind that results from our miss these uh, distorted perceptions of ourselves and distorted ways of evaluating our worth and um, our worth and it is possible to, uh, to experience the cessation, the falling away of this tendency toward uh, being born into, um, into that impossible cycle of, um, I call it the cycle of becoming, the cycle of never quite being good enough. It's just a cycle. It's just a story. It's not who you are. 
I stumbled in my notes this evening just before we started on this advertisement from a woman in Vancouver. She sells prints. And with her prints, she offers a, a little reflection with each one. And this is the autumn reflection. And since it's the autumn of the year, another reminder of what helps us to reclaim our heritage. One sits by the river with no purpose, just to sit and be with nowhere to go and nothing to think about. One watches all the subtle activity of the forest and the water, listens to all the little sounds, feels with all the senses. The mind is empty, the body is fully alive. In this state, mind and body melt into life, and there is no separation. It is an absolute union, our primal and primary nature. can see this valuing this primary, primal nature, what Trungpa Rinpoche called basic goodness, not good versus bad, but the fundamental okayness that we discover when we just feel our existence, when we are awake and open. We, at the very same time, we are awakening in us that basic gratitude, not for what we have or what we've achieved, but for what we are. Remembering that line from uh, Thoreau where he said, I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. My thanksgiving is perpetual. It's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh at my vague, indefinite riches, for no run on my bank can drain it, for my wealth is not possession or competence, but enjoyment of being. So reclaiming our heritage, cultivating our basic goodness, cultivating kindness, activating gratitude, doing gratitude practice every day. How many of you do gratitude practice? Anybody willing to speak anecdotally about its impact? Transformative. Transformative. It's such a great antidote for the complaining mind. So deactivate the complaining mind. Um, Deactivating the regretting mind. Of course, noticing it. We all have the regretting mind that comes up. But we, we don't feed it. We don't land in regrets. We don't land in judgments. We notice them and let them be the cause of our, um, 
reminder of how important it is to, to love and be grateful and see the goodness in ourselves and others. I think that's all I really want to say. Any comments or questions this evening? Please. Oh, yes. Thank you for the question. What do I mean by gratitude practice? Well, first and foremost, just as that, as that poem from Thoreau reminds us that just letting ourselves be is, the, to me, the greatest gratitude practice because we begin to feel, we begin to reconnect again with uh, a gratitude not for something that we for something that we created or accomplished or became, but just for our very existence. So that's the number one most important gratitude practice is just to let ourselves be. It's be real simple. Stillness, stepping out of time, so coming out of the time trance. So letting the past go, letting the future go, letting ideas of the present go, moments at a time. So you could say that mindfulness is the best gratitude practice. So having said the more general, I think it's really reflecting on, our, on the preciousness of our existence that we've been... I know that you sat with... Uh, you were blessed enough to sit with uh, Anushka last week. I hope most of you were here. Anushka spoke about the, the different... Uh, levels of consciousness or the, the different planes of existence that we are born into. Both perhaps literally, perhaps metaphorically, we're born into the human realm, we're sometimes born into the hell realms, we're sometimes born into the heaven realms where everything is very delicious. But it's understood in the Buddhist cosmology anyway that the human realm is the uh, optimum realm for awakening and practice and one is one is um, encouraged to reflect every day on the preciousness of this existence, how rare it is to be born in this particular configuration, how easy, how vulnerable it is, how easy it is to lose and to, to take advantage of that and feel grateful for it. So that's one. To reflect on, on whatever, whatever good fortune you've had in your life it could be the health of your body it could be it could be any other any number of things of course we have the things that have not gone so well but we tend to dwell on what not what has not gone so well and tend to overlook the things that have gone well so to reflect on that and do it as every day every day Think of something every day. I know there may even be people in this room who have gratitude buddies. That would be another thing that I would recommend, is find a gratitude buddy. And each day you communicate, either by email, phone, or whether you see that person, uh, contact them with something you're grateful for. And those who I know who have done that have found that it it became a, a... gladdening force in their life that really made a huge difference. So having a gratitude buddy, um, I think you can make up your own. 
What would you, if you were to make up your own, what would it look like? Yes. Making a gift for someone. Great. Make, yeah, making a gift with it or telling something, someone about it. Beautiful. That's lovely. So making contact, making a connection. That's great. And that will just increase the gratitude. Gratitude for connection. I'm incredibly grateful for connection wherever I can find it. beautiful thing. Anyone else? Any other comments, questions, please? 21 items a night. A list of 21 things you're grateful for. It could be one word or... She says she has a stressful job and if she didn't do that, it... So, so it makes you a nicer person. Cool. Please. Receiving something from someone else about about their gratitude awakens that in you. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Generosity is such a a great practice as well. A great gladdening of the heart connects with our our basic goodness and gives something to someone else and gives something to ourselves as well. Beautiful. Please, Marlena. Everyone here, she she stopped sending Christmas cards. Send thank you notes and Thanksgiving cards this year. Beautiful. Beautiful. I can tell you've been on retreat. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Isn't it? It's remarkable when we, when we settle into a safe, quiet place, what beauty comes out of us. It's so, all our, our sweetness just flows. And so I, I'm getting a transmission and thank you. For, that's so great. That is so great. I've, I often get those inspirations when I'm on retreat. 
then harden up when I get home. <laughs> anyway, I think uh, that's all we have uh, for today. Just remember about the preciousness of life. It, uh, one life, 100 years, 400 seasons, 1,200 months, 5,218 weeks, 36,521 days, 876,504 hours, 52,590,240 minutes, 3,155,414,400 seconds. that we are part of this interwoven net of connection moving the folds of life and being moved continuously and remembering that our intentionality it becomes the cause of our actions, either wholesome or unwholesome, body, speech, or mind, and that we dedicate ourselves to inclining toward the wholesome, toward the loving, toward the caring, toward the compassionate, toward the generous, toward the patient, toward the wise. Commit ourselves for the benefit of all beings who we share this web with, a deep wish that all beings can have happiness in their lives and the causes of happiness. That all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. That all beings can feel grateful for their existence. Recognize the sacred happiness that is without sorrow. our inner freedom, and a deep wish that all beings can at least meet the joys and the sorrows with more serenity and equanimity, less grasping, less aversion. And again, a deep wish that our life, our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all beings be free. So just a, uh, have one announcement. I'm actually quite uh, excited about a day-long retreat I will be doing this Saturday at Spirit Rock, Spirit Rock along with uh, a educator, psychotherapist, uh, yogi, screenwriter named Catherine Flaxman, who is one of the founders of the Lomi School, which is a mind-body consciousness school that's been gone, that goes all the way back to the 70s, very closely connected to Spirit Rock. Those of you who may have met Robert Hall, 
through the years. One of our Spirit Rock teachers, right-hand person to Fritz Perls and the Gestalt therapy world, he was one of the co-founders, along with Catherine Flaxman of the Lomi School. Anyway, she will be uh, leading this day-long with me uh, that combines meditation with uh, with storytelling, basically, or screenwriting, where we begin to reflect on our life and our, the stories of our lives and w- the chronic stories that we tell and to put it in the form of a screenplay and then to look at it so we develop some kind of freedom and having fun with it, actually. And I met with her about the day long, and I got really enthusiastic and excited about it myself, and I, I just want to pass that on to you and hope you come. And I think it'll be interesting for you and perhaps liberating, because it's all about learning to create some space around our uh, chronically held views and traumas and fixations and to just have more freedom. So please come and enjoy writing a screenplay. And they are, it, they are offering continual CEUs or continuing education units. Secondly, a reminder, as we do each week, that we are um, obligated to pay, in order to stay in this place, $150 per week. And any help, any dana, generosity, uh, in the form of room rental dana is much appreciated. And you can offer that in many different ways. You can offer it in cash in the basket as support for the room rental. You can offer checks written out to the St. John, St. John the Evangelist Church, Episcopal Church, and put Mission Dharma in the subject line. Uh, and your donation to help with the room rental will be tax deductible. Uh, you could also go to the PayPal account on the uh, missiondharma.org website. Those are the different options. So any help with the room rental, much appreciated. Even if it was a couple dollars, if everybody did it, we would cover the, the rent. And then just as usual with Anushka last week, with me or whoever's taking this seat, we offer it freely as our practice of dana. If you feel to respond with your practice of dana, knowing that generosity in general gladdens our hearts so much, uh, and also if you do teacher dana, it, it allows us to move on to, the, to offer the teachings to other groups as well. So thank you in advance for any teacher Donna as well. And thanks for your practice most of all. And please remember to practice uh, kindness and goodness this week. Thanks. Help with breaking down the room as well. <laughs>